Alrighty. Um, this is where I believe we left off last time. Can you guys confirm that we made it this far? Maybe we didn't get to the, the spirit's deity. Okay. Yeah, I'm good. But we made it through the sun's deity there. Okay. Well, let's, um, let's just recap real briefly. Three words that you need to know when it comes to the Trinity. What are those three words? They all end with I-T-Y. Singularity. Singularity. Plurality. Plurality. And equality. equality. Okay, singularity, there is one God. Plurality, there are three persons. Equality, all three are God. Okay? Um, we looked in the Old Testament for some passages about the deity of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. But what did we discuss about the Old Testament versus the New Testament as far as the doctrine of the Trinity? In the Old Testament, the doctrine is implied. And in the New Testament, it is... Applied, explained. Yeah, well, applied, explained, or even exegeted, you could say. Um, in John chapter 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And it says in verse 18, I love John 1, 18... No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. But then it says, the Word, He, has exegeted Him. He has made Him known. So when you think about exegesis, that's what every good preacher of the Bible does, is he studies the Word of God. He studies it, if he can, in its original languages. He seeks to understand the intended meaning of the author, and he presents that to people. Well, it says here that Jesus, the Son of God, has exegeted the Father. He has made Him known. It's an amazing thought. That's what we see in the New Testament. Through the incarnation of Christ, we have the Godhead fully explained, uh, truly explained, I should say. So we talked about in the New Testament, the Father's deity, and there are so many passages we could go there. I think there are some better ones than those. Uh, you know, you're just thinking of... Um, I've got Matthew 6, 9 there. I believe that's the model prayer. Our Father who's in heaven. Uh, be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Be merciful as your Father is perfect. You've got those passages. Um, the Father is, of course, assumed. The Son's deity, though, takes more explanation in the New Testament. And we looked through those passages last week. And the Holy Spirit's deity is more fully explained in the New Testament. And let's look at some of these passages. We can turn to all these together. Let's go to the book of Acts, chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. This passage is a little different as far as explaining the deity of the, the Spirit. Because it's not, a, uh, it's not a letter written to a church explaining theology. It's a narrative. We're seeing here the narrative of Ananias and Sapphira, who were sh struck down by God himself in judgment. Um, but we pick up theology from this narrative, and let's read it together. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Someone want to read that for us? Sure. Okay. But a certain man named Ananias, with the fire of his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds. His wife, also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of of the land for yourself. While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. All right. This is the early, early, early church. The apostles were the ones who were in charge in the early church in Jerusalem. The people of the church were selling their goods and, and providing for each other. They would sell lots of things, and they had a voluntary socialism that was going on there. The problem with what Ananias and Sapphira were doing wasn't that they kept back some of the proceeds for themselves, because it would be a little unreasonable for everybody just to give everything that they have, and no one withholds any personal property. The problem is that when they presented what they had to the apostles... They said it was all when it wasn't all. It was a lie. And who did they lie to according to verse 3? And who did they lie to according to verse 4? God. There you go. The Holy Spirit is God. They lied to the Holy Spirit. And he says right after saying that, you haven't lied to men. You've lied to God. So we find out from that narrative that the Holy Spirit is in fact 
God himself. But there are other passages. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 2. So turn forward two books. 1 Corinthians 2, where we'll be in the sermon this morning, though we won't get to this verse. (laughs) That's pretty ambitious to think we'd get five verses covered today. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 11. Let's look at that together. Oh, well, let's start at verse 10. Someone want to read 10 and 11? Okay. Okay. But God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even then, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of man, of man, of a man, except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. No one knows or comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And how can the Spirit of God know the depths of God, of his thoughts? Because he is God. That's right. Because the Spirit of God is God. And what we find out in this chapter, what we'll look at next week, is that he reveals these things to us. An amazing, amazing thing. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3.17. 2 Corinthians, the very next book, chapter 3, verse 17. I love 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, let's do 15 to 17. 2 Corinthians 3, 15 to 17. Who's got it? Got it. Okay. Yes, to this day, whenever, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. All right. Great verse. Uh, The opening part of that verse, the Lord is the Spirit. The Lord is the Spirit. It's pretty clear, (laughs) isn't it? Uh, That the Spirit of God is Yahweh himself. The Spirit of God is God. And then finally, Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9, 13 and 14. Now this one, I want you to remember... The attributes of God that we study. The attributes of God, they were broken down into two categories. What are the names of the two categories of God's attributes? Communicable. Yep, and incommunicable. And can you define incommunicable? Not shared with us. Good. Not shared. Not shared. Non-transferable. Okay, so remember that. Have that in your mind. And let's look at Hebrews 9, 13, and 14. Who can read that for us? I got it. Okay. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? All right, there's so much to see in there that doesn't have to do with the deity of the Spirit, Um, but I do want us to see that for this moment at least. What adjective is put in front of Spirit? Eternal. And is that a communicable or incommunicable attribute? Incommunicable. God's eternality is something he has in himself. Now, he gives eternal life, but no one as an entity is eternal but God alone, correct? And here we see the Spirit is eternal. Therefore, the Holy Spirit must be divine, deity, the one true God. Okay? Questions on these New Testament passages on the deity of the Father, Son, and Spirit? Clear-ish? Okay. Well, let's look at a few more. Singularity. Now, does, here we are we're talking about, okay, the New Testament says the Father is God. The New Testament says the Son is God. The New Testament says the Spirit is God. But does the New Testament say there's one God? Maybe the New Testament explains the Old Testament in such a way that we understand now that there are three gods, three personages who are all God. Well, let's look at some passages and see if that's the case. Ephesians, we're going to get your... Bible workout today. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Ephesians 4, starting at verse 4, and reading through 6. Someone want to read that for us? Okay. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in all, in you all. All right, so we can see here, one is the point, isn't it? <laughs> There's a singularity aspect. There's one Lord, one God, one Spirit. 
There's some singularity that's lifted up and uh, pointed to in Ephesians 4. And in James 2.19, perhaps you know this verse by heart. What do even the demons believe, according to James 2? God exists. Yeah, but there's a little more than that in James 2. Okay, let's turn there. James 2. James 2.19. Okay, when you see it, tell me. Okay. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe in each other. All right. You believe that God is one. So not just that God is, that God is one. So the New Testament testifies... God is one, right? Um, there is one God and, and Father of all. Um, one God. So do they believe that there's one God, but not a Trinity? Who, who is they? The demons? Uh, the demons are certainly aware of the Lordship of Christ. They had a personal interaction with Him and on a variety of occasions. Remember Legion, uh, the man with all the demons? They discovered Jesus' authority. Um, the Holy Spirit, I'm, I'm sure they've uh, come to a true knowledge of His deity also. And so, um, do they have a doctrine of the Trinity? We don't know that. <laughs> but they believe God is one. They don't believe in um, a plethora of gods. And they certainly don't believe we'll become our own gods one day on our own planet. <laughs> or they probably have a better understanding than a lot of us. Yeah, I mean, the, the spirit world is something that with the phys- our physical eye, we're blind to. But we know there's stuff going on, right? And uh, the demons are not blind to those things. They, they see those things, which that would be an amazing thing. <laughs> In a lot of ways, yeah. Yep. All right. Um, there are more passages we could go to for singularity, but um, the testimony of, of Scripture is that there is but one God. We also see plurality. Plurality. We mentioned this passage last week. We don't have to turn to Matthew. Um, we can start at, at uh, 2 Corinthians. But in Matthew 3, you have the baptism of Christ. At the baptism of Christ, you have the Son, who is there being baptized, obviously. There he is in flesh being baptized. He comes up out of the water. The Holy Spirit descends upon him, and there's a voice from heaven, the Father. There's three at play there, Right? There's not just uh, one person. There are three persons. And in Matthew 28, 19, I think this was referenced last week also. Uh, baptism. Who, whose name do we baptize in? Father. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Three persons. And then 2 Corinthians 13, 14. I love this verse. The very last inspired verse written to the Corinthians. Someone want to read that for us? What an amazing Trinitarian benediction there is. Um, the grace of Jesus, the love of God, the Father implied here, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Sweet verse. Really like that verse. Okay, so we see plurality there also. And then we see there are a bunch of different verses, uh, passages that walk us through the different functions of the Father and the Son and the Spirit uh, as they work together to bring about the plan of God, the will of God. Do what? Well, no, they, we're, we're looking at other things now. <laughs> um, for instance, just on a basic level, the Father didn't die on the cross, right? And the Holy Spirit didn't die on the cross. The Son died on the cross. So we recognize there was a unique role that the Son played in salvation apart from the Father and the Holy Spirit in the sense that He was the one who did it. But it was not apart from the Father and the Spirit in the sense that He did it on His own. All three persons work together in perfect harmony, don't they? The Father and the Son and the Spirit don't war against each other, do they? Now they have different functions and there's submission. There is functional submission within the Trinity. Remember what Jesus prayed in the garden? That's Matthew 26. What did he pray? Nevertheless, not my... my will be done, but yours. Yes, not my will, but your will be done. He bowed his knees before the Father while he was in the flesh and prayed, not my will, but your will be done. Um, John 14, let's turn there together. John chapter 14, verses 25 to 31. John chapter 14, 
verses 25 to 31. Someone want to read that for us? 1425 to 31. Yep. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do, as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. All right, you see in this passage, Father, Son, and Spirit all playing different roles in carrying out the will of God. Uh, At the beginning, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit, the Helper, will be sent. So at this point, he hadn't been sent yet, and he's being sent by the Father in the name of Jesus. And then Jesus says, I am leaving you peace. Okay, The Father's not leaving them peace, but Jesus who came to earth is leaving them peace. And then Jesus says he's going to the Father. He says the Father's greater than I. That trips a lot of people up. Um, essentially meaning the Father's in heaven. You're, shouldn't you be rejoicing that I'm going there to the presence of God in heaven? He's in a greater existence than I'm in at, the, at this time. And so he's going to where the Father is, meaning the Son and the Father are in different places at the same time, and there's a recognition of one place being better than the other, the absence of sin in the glory of God. So that's a great passage where you can look and see you have all three persons, each doing something different, but they're all in perfect harmony, and none of them ceases to be God. You see that also in Ephesians chapter 1. When it talks about our salvation, who who elects Father, Son, or Spirit? Father. Father does. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He's the one who offers that blessing. He's the one who elects in Christ. Who's the one who redeems Father, Son, or Spirit? Accomplishes redemption. Son. The Son. And who's the one who regenerates and seals until the day of redemption? Spirit. The Spirit. Not the Father, not the Son. Okay, so in our salvation, as we have come to know the Lord, we have experienced the Trinity, haven't we? We have experienced Father, Son, and Spirit in our salvation. That's Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. Uh, 1 Timothy 2, let's all turn there. 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Hmm. This is another passage for singularity, by the way. Um, this, could, this verse could also be at the top there for singularity, but let's look at it together. Uh, 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. Who's got it? Jerry, go ahead. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win. You in 1 Timothy 2? 1 Timothy. Mm-hmm. Why do they got to have two Timothys in there anyway, huh? <laughs> 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator, also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. All right. So we have, again, the confession that there is one God, singularity, and there's one mediator between God and men, Christ Jesus. The Father is not the mediator. The Spirit is not the mediator. But the Son, the functional role He plays in our salvation is mediator and in our ongoing sanctification also because according to Hebrews 7.25, what does the Son always live to do? Do you know that verse? He, He always lives to make intercession for the saints. Great verse. He's our mediator every day, every moment of every day. What was that verse again? Hebrews 7.25. Hebrews 7.25. We also have First uh, John chapter 2. If anyone sins, what do we have with the Father? 
an advocate, an advocate. So Jesus remains our mediator, our advocate, our intercessor. Um, but what does Romans 8 say about, now I'm just thinking about different passages. Romans 8 say about when we don't have utterance for prayers, who intercedes for us? The Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit. When we can't even come up with the words, the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf, making those prayers for us. A beautiful, beautiful thing. And then Titus, Titus 3. So let's turn just a couple pages over. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 8, one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. Titus chapter 3, 4 through 8. And I'll go ahead and read that because I like it so much. Titus 3, starting at verse 4. Again, look for Father, Son, and Spirit all working here. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Father, Son, and Spirit, all working to bring about salvation for the people of God. All right. Thoughts or questions on singularity, plurality, and functions? Okay. Yeah, but I was just going to make one note that last one and not. Um, sorry. In First Timothy two five through six, uh-huh. where it was talking about the mediator, right? Yes. You know, it's <clears throat> the scripture gives us what God has revealed about Himself. But it also, conversely, it says positively what God is. But it also implies very clearly, negatively, that which is blasphemous. Yeah. So there is no other mediator between God and man. There's only Jesus Christ. Can't be Mary. Yep. Can't be anyone else. Or an angel. <clears throat> or an angel. Yeah. Right? In yep. other words, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that right understanding orthodoxy is built into scripture. Mm-hmm. And we do have to be discerning. Yes. That's, that's yep, absolutely. Yep. Yep, when we recognize that Jesus is the one mediator that excludes all others, right? Isn't that uh, part of the wedding vows, excluding all others, something like that? Uh, so if you are a part of the church and you've been joined to Christ as the bridegroom, we're excluding all others, aren't we? Okay. What would that say to the Catholics about praying to the saints. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Catholics, you've got the priest who hears your confession. You've got Mary who hears the rosary. You've got the saints with all their candles that you pray to. It, yeah, they have lots of mediators, but none of them actually mediate. They're all idols, aren't they? All right. The doctrine of the Trinity, as we know it, was recognized over time by the early church as they wrestled with Scripture and fought heresy. So some of these things we were talking about, these heretical views as different things like that were popping up in the early church, the church needed to articulate what they believed from the Scriptures. As more and more heresy abounded, the church needed to go to the Scriptures and to identify uh, what the doctrine of the Trinity was and how they could rightly explain the Godhead. So from the Council of Constantinople, or you could say the Council of Istanbul, right? Uh, the Council of Constantinople, 381. Thanks, Walker. It says... <laughs> they, they wrote, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father, before all worlds, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, and in the Holy Ghost, 
the Lord and giver of life. Father, Son, Spirit. These are all uh, words, these are all articulations that can be defended from Scripture. And they were coming together in these ecumenical councils. The first one, Council of Nicaea, back in 325. We have the Council of Constantinople and others, where they were articulating what the Scriptures taught about the Godhead as they combated heresy. That's what was going on then. Um, of course, these councils started because of um, the uh, conversion of Constantine. Before, the church was on the run from you know, the early church, Jesus' disciples, all the way until three, what is it, when the conversion of Constantine was what, 320, somewhere around there? Um, they're on the run, and so they're not getting together in peace and forming councils and articulating doctrine until this point. And, uh, of course, this is when heresies were really starting to pop up as well, because the whole empire was Christian, so Constantine said. And he, he declares them to be Christian, and were they unified? Well, no. Uh, we've never had a perfect Christian unity this side of heaven. Are you looking forward to that in heaven, though? <laughs> when all of our doctrines corrected... And all of our disagreements are laid aside and all of our worship is pure and there's no twinge of sin or selfishness or pride in there. That'll be great, won't it? But until then, we have stuff like the Council of Constantinople, okay? And this is a good articulation of the Trinity. You also have the Athanasian Creed. You can make a note of that. You should look that up. If you've not read that within the last two, two years or so or ever, you need to read it again. The Athanasian Creed, named after a guy named Athanasius, See if I can spell it on the board here. Athanasian Creed. You got it. Creed. The Athanasian Creed goes into detail about the Trinity also. That's mainly what it's about. And that would be a good one for you to, to look at, okay? So, um, let's make some statements here in our modern language. We're not at the Council of Constantinople. <laughs> we are here. And we can say God is absolutely unified. God is three persons. God is complete deity. Uh, God is functionally subordinate within himself. The three persons of the Trinity have different functions, and there is submission within the Trinity. God is eternally three in one. Okay? Can we agree with these statements after looking at, these, at the scriptures? He's absolutely unified. He's singular. He's three persons. He's plural. He is complete deity, functionally subordinate, eternally three in one. After singularity and plurality, the third word you need to know is one that we've actually already defined as we've gone through and looked at the Father, Son, and Spirit being defined as God in Scripture. It's equality. All three are God. Thomas Aquinas said, If there were any inequality in the divine persons, they would not have the same essence, and thus the three persons would not be one God, which is impossible. We must therefore admit equality among the divine persons. There has to be equality there. Otherwise, one or two would cease to be God. Right? So theologically speaking, singularity, there is one God in existence. Plurality, God has revealed himself as a triunity, three persons. And equality, all three persons are revealed as God on their own. And that's an important aspect that we'll talk about next week when we get into some heretical understandings of the Trinity. The Son, by Himself as a person, is 100% God. The Spirit, by Himself as a person, is 100% God. The same with the Father. They do not come together to make God. But on their own, as individual persons, each is 100% God. And yet, there is one God. All right? Don't yet, please. Oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> and we're going to talk about substance and persons next. I'll take this moment to uh, show you some books. If you're interested in getting some resources on the Trinity, probably the best one you can get, uh, from my perspective, is James White's The Forgotten Trinity. I like it the most because uh, he kind of approaches subjects the way I do, and so I understand it the best. All right. Uh, James White, Forgotten Trinity. Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves is a, another good book, and this one takes a much more different approach. This one is one that you would use in a theology class in a Bible college, 
Um, this one is much more talking to the Christian layperson about you've experienced the Trinity in your salvation. You've delighted in the Trinity as you've delighted in God. Uh, Michael Reeves. And then this one is a little bit heavier lifting. The Deep Things of God by Fred Sanders. Uh, also about the Trinity. The Deep Things of God. Fred Sanders. Okay? Very good. So, one substance and three persons. Let's talk about this. You'll hear the Trinity uh, discussed in this way. Substance and persons or essence in, per, in persons. So let's get into the theological definitions of these terms, that God is one substance and three persons. Well, substance basically means what something is. What something is. It's a set of characteristics that defines the nature of something or someone. So when we talk about God's substance, think of all those attributes we studied. What is the substance of God? Well, God is spirit. He's immaterial. He's eternal. He's omnipresent, he's omniscient, he's omnipotent, he's imminent, he's transcendent, he's holy, he's just, he's good. So you take all of those perfect attributes, and that's the substance of God. He is alone in this substance. No one else shares in his substance. His essence, or substance, is defined by his attributes, both incommunicable and communicable. Communicable. And everything has an essence. So a triangle, for example, the essence of a triangle is three sides, three corners, and the degree of the angles equals 180 degrees, right? So a triangle is three sides, three corners, and 180. So we'll say that's 60 degrees, that's 60 degrees, and that's 60 degrees. But is this the only way a triangle can look? No, no, of course not. You can have an acute triangle, an isosceles triangle, whatever other uh, triangles there are. Now I'm not going to be able to like to do it. <laughs> a goofy looking triangle. You can have all sorts of triangles. I can just drew two of the same kind. But, um, the essence of a triangle, though, is that it has those qualities. And if it fits those attributes, those qualities, then it is, in substance, a triangle. That's what substance is. Now, a person is a who. Now, the substance is more of a, a what. A person is a who. A character or subject, sometimes even within an object. Um, you can also say that a person has mind and will. Okay, uh, A person is self-aware. There's self-awareness there. And there's a will and there's a mind. But it's a who. Personality. There's personality involved. And I say sometimes within an object, because take the Trinity, for example, the object of God, the what of God, his essence. Well, within his essence, you have three who's, three persons. God's personhood is defined by how he characterizes himself. And he characterizes himself in three. So think about yourself. Your humanity is your substance. If someone said, what are you? You could give them a fair answer and say, I'm a human being, right? I'm, that's, that's what I am. But you're more than that. You're Andy or Brittany or Jim. You're a who. You have a personality. You have a mind and a will. Uh, there's intellect there to varying degrees among all of us, right? Um, there's personality. So there's not just the what aspect, but there's also the who. And God is not limited as we are, where there is but one person with each one of us. But with God, there's three persons, right? So that's a basic idea of substance and person. Thoughts or questions on that? I'm going to erase my bad triangles. <laughs> okay. Good. Now, person, we, I like to use the word person. This is how traditionally in Christian theology we say persons. Don't say people. You say there, there's one God, three people. Well, that might not be entirely wrong. I'm not 100% sure on the semantics of that. But people's minds, they jump to, well, three humans. But we're, we don't want to imply ever in any way that God is human. He is the creator, not a creature. Humans are creatures. God is not a human. Um, so this, the safest thing you can say is God is... Um, there's one God, three persons. 
One God, three persons. Okay, so if you can burn that into your brain, that's a good way to phrase that. The Trinity is counterintuitive, yet not contradictory. The Trinity is a mystery, and we're going to talk about mystery today in 1 Corinthians 2. Uh, during the message, I'll talk about how God's wisdom is a mystery. But the Trinity is itself a mystery. It's not contradictory, but it's counterintuitive. It goes against our natural way of thinking. All three persons are one being. They don't come together to make one being. Each person is God himself. And all three persons share in the same being. God is comprehensively in agreement. All three persons, though, are also distinct. God is eternally diverse within himself. Because the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. So we can't say that... um, God is, or the Trinity, there's an absolute unity that blurs the lines between the distinctions. There is an absolute unity, but there's distinctions and diversity within that unity. Just like in the church, there's one church, but there are many members, right? And we come together uh, as one body, though there are different members. So, there you go. But unlike the church, because with the church, each member isn't a church on his own. (laughs) But with the Trinity, each person is God on his own. And yet, there's but one God. They do. There are a couple okay ones, and we'll talk about those next week probably, because we're going to look at all the bad bad analogies next week. (laughs) Um, But there are some okay ones. Here's one I'll give you to think about. You chew on it for a week and see if you uh, if you spit it out. Um, the Trinity is like, and I hate I hate saying that phrase. It's like scary when you say that phrase. You could say that the Trinity is like time, past, present, and future. The three exist simultaneously, and um, they don't work against each other, and. Each is time on its own. Uh, past, present, and future. There's something that you want. Okay. I don't know what I think about it, but you can you can think about it. So again, defining where we are on the big scale of world religions, we are of course theists. We believe that God exists. We are monotheists. We believe there is but one God, and we are Trinitarian monotheists, meaning we believe that the one God is three persons. So if you were looking at the other religions that exist out there in the world. Within theism, you have things like deism, panentheism, pantheism, uh, atheism, agnosticism. I didn't mean to say within theism, as opposed to theism. Those are the different categories. If uh, someone said, I don't know what I am, I want to look at all the options and then pick a route. Theism or any of the five yellow ones listed, that's where you're going to end up. Okay, um, But if you're going to go down the route of theism, you can choose monotheism, polytheism, or henotheism. Anybody know what henotheism is? Henotheism is the belief that there are multiple gods, polytheism, but there's only one that we're concerned about. Mm -hmm. So it kind of looks like monotheism. In reality, it's polytheism, but they call themselves henotheists. Uh, Mormons are henotheists. They believe there are all kinds of gods out there. There are more gods out there than there are atoms in the universe because it's infinite is what they believe. And so, but, but they're henotheists. They only have one God with which they, they have to do. And then if you're going to pick monotheism within that, you can be Trinitarian, Unitarian, Arian, or a Partialist. And we'll talk about those next week. We'll define those um, within their bad analogies next week. Okay? All right? Of course, now, we wouldn't present this to somebody like, hey, here are all your options. Just pick one and see what fits you best. Uh, <laughs> we, are, we are Trinitarian monotheists because God is Trinity and because he has revealed himself as such. We believe in the word of God, and the word of God talks about uh, God's nature and man's nature and explains salvation. This is God's wisdom for us. Uh, but there are people, of course, who have gone all kinds of different routes, and those are some of those routes. So now let's close with a few practical questions. How do you talk about God to your neighbor? 
having come off the heels of this study, say today you go home and neighbor's out in a place where you can chat with him or her. Anything you want to you say to your neighbor uh, in particular about God, <laughs> having gone through this study? Well, if he pulls up today, I can ask him, did you go to church today? Yeah, there you go. There's no sauce in church. Yeah. Where do you go? I have a great Wednesday. Where do you go? Yeah, and yeah, there you go. Context on what he does. And our neighbor actually did tell Jim and I, oh, the wife's LDS. You must be Christians. I'm neither. Oh. Or he didn't say that. What did he say? Something like that. He said, you must be Christians? Well, he recognized on Every time he has come over, Jim's had this on his shirt, trying oh. to burn Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Oh, yeah, so okay. It was pretty obvious. <laughs> gotcha. Everyone else has. Good, good. <laughs> That's why scripture says always be ready, right? So I should practice and have that mindset. Be more concerned about his salvation. I'm right there with you. I, I had a moment this past week um, on, right here on the church property. Um, I had a missed opportunity. I, I intentionally missed an opportunity because I didn't want to go that direction. And so uh, there we were standing in the parking lot. This man doesn't know the Lord. We were talking all around it, you know. We, were, we covered every religious base all around the gospel, and I didn't, I didn't proclaim it. So, uh, yeah, I. There are many times I've failed. Yeah. I always remember. I should have said. I should have said. Yeah. That's that's why it's important. The other day when we were practicing in the auditorium. I got you to say what I wanted you to say, and then I didn't follow up, and I was like, you blew it, even in practice. <laughs> well, that's why we just keep practicing, and you just, you know, the Lord uses it, uh, whatever we do, the Lord will use it. He can draw a straight line with a crooked stick, can't he? That's, that's what I'm always amazed at. I've had people come up and say, remember when you said this? I'm like, no. <laughs> yeah. well, I've, always, I've always told everybody <laughs> that's what you said I'm like wow <laughs> praise God yeah amen amen well we do have to recognize when we talk to our neighbors um, they have they have presuppositions about who God is right most likely around here obviously even if someone's not practicing LDS that person still has that mindset uh, for the most part if they're from here at all or raised in that context. And the Trinity is something totally different. And they've, they've heard something about the Trinity. But what are the chances they've heard something accurate and biblical about the Trinity? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Brittany, how much did you know about the Trinity through high school? No. No. Yeah. yeah. You don't understand the Trinity. But there was, was there talk at least among Latter-day Saints about, well, it's a bad thing or it's a goofy thing or anything like that? Yeah, it's just kind of like one of those it doesn't make sense things. They don't really elaborate. They just say it's one of those things that they believe it doesn't make sense type of thing. But I'll tell you why. Mm -hmm. Or how they make sense that it doesn't make sense. I don't know. Yeah. And from a biblical worldview, we understand that the carnal mind cannot comprehend the things of God. That's why it's so important when we talk about the nature of God to our neighbors, we use scripture. And so you've got that square on your sheet now that has all those references in there. Use that. Keep it with you. Use it as a cheat sheet. And I've actually got a Trinity cheat sheet that's nicely printed up. Maybe I'll print those up for you. And you can have the nicer printed that'd version. Be great. <laughs> and, uh, and use that because we want them to see this isn't just something we believe because guys got together in Nicaea or guys got together in Constantinople. And they all wore big hats and dresses, and there was like incense burning, and then they said, ooh, we'll come up with this really confusing philosophy. That's not what we believe. We believe the scriptures testify to these things, and we'll, we'll prove it from the scriptures before we'll ever reference any councils. That's what I did in this lesson. We want to see it from the scriptures first, um, and everything else comes later, okay?
Is it possible for your child to understand the nature of God? Depends what your IQ level is. <laughs> <laughs> and to a degree, it depends on the child, but generally speaking. No. Depends on the parent. <laughs> <laughs> it also depends on the parent. Why do you say no, Andy? Elaborate. Because, like you said earlier, it is counterintuitive, the nature of God. We, can't, we cannot wrap our minds around it. The way, the way I say it to myself is that my finite mind cannot entirely understand the infinite God. And we can apprehend from his self-revelation what he has said about himself. Yeah. But my my ability to entirely understand and comprehend God, no. Okay, so you're saying in the sense that none of us can true can exhaustively understand Correct. the nature of God. The child can't. But can a child comprehend or does they understand the doctrine of the Trinity? Yes. Walker. When I was younger and still lived in Arizona, I thought I understood like. Christianity, like I thought I was saved and everything, but when I went to, when I moved to Utah and I went to Pioneer Bible Camp, mm -hmm. that like really kind of opened up my eyes and that was like seventh grade the first time, so I didn't really understand the nature of God or the Trinity or the Gospel or anything until like seventh grade. Yeah, a lot of that depends on the type of teaching you receive, right, and how deep it goes. I, You said the nature of God, not the not the fullness of God. Right, yeah. And a child yeah. can understand love and forgiveness. Yeah. Sin. And those are those are definitely characteristics of God that they can. There's consequences to sin. Right. Yeah, okay. and, and we, we give them Bibles and we teach them from the Bible and we expect them to understand what the Bible says to a degree, right? Because God hasn't just given his revelation for those who are 18 and over. It's for all people. Uh, I was on uh, the podcast that I have. We released an interview this last week with a guy named Andrew Rappaport, and he talked about how so many churches they think children's ministry they need stories, teen ministry they need morality, and then when they you know get to be adults then they can do theology, <laughs> and that is so backwards and messed up. Um, how, how do you have morality without theology, right? And so he was talking about it at his church. They started writing their own children's curriculum and started teaching their children at the church the doctrine of the Trinity. And he said, after a year with the kids, they could explain it better than their parents could. Mm -hmm. and, and we have to believe that about our kids, that if God is going to save them at that age, which he can and does, he's going to teach them about himself. He can do that. And uh, we need to have high expectations for our kids. It's good. When kids believe almost anything they're told, so... Like yes. It's almost easier to teach them than yes. someone. <laughs> and that's that's the biblical principle for those who are uh, those who are like infants. They yeah. take in whatever they're given, and so godly parents are a blessing to those children, aren't they? So what's the verse? Yes, we become as little children. Okay. I can't remember what's that. Well, there are a few. As, as little children long for pure milk, that's in 2 Peter 2.1. 2 Peter 2.1? Let's look at it, 2 Peter 2.1. We've got, we've got two and a half minutes. <laughs> no, not 2.1. Um, <laughs> that's a very different verse, 2 Peter 2.1. Is it 1 Peter 2.1? No, not 1 Peter 2.1. I know it's one of the Peters, and it's right here, chapter 1 or 2. Um... Yeah. Now I'm going to cheat. I'm going to use my phone. First Peter 2-2. Two, two. First Peter 2-2. Two, two. Too many ones and twos getting all jumbled around there. First Peter 2-2. Two, two. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. That's that's the one I was thinking of. I don't know if that's the one you're thinking of, but it's Matthew 18, 3. Oh, okay. 
Yeah. Acting very surely, I say unto you, Jesus speaking, unless you are converted and become as little children, there you, go. you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, good. And if Jerry Bowman was here, he would remind us, childlike is not childish. <laughs> that we are to be childlike, not childish. Very good. Good. Um, let's see. A couple more, I think. What do you see when you read God in Scripture? Um, that's kind of a weird question. Basically, what I was saying, what I was trying to get at is, there are times when you read through Scripture where God is going, just the term God will be in reference to the Father. There will be times when you read it, and the word God is going to be in reference to the Godhead, meaning the Trinity. And so that's something to think through as you do Bible study and Bible reading. Um, how do you refer to the Holy Spirit when you use a pronoun? Not an it. There you go. He. He. Because he's a person. He has personality, mind, will. How does the knowledge of the Trinity allow you to live and pray to God's glory? Got 60 seconds. <laughs> Worship, revelation-based worship, God's worship. How about our prayers? Yeah, you know, sometimes I know my prayers are ignorant, mm. you know, and but God's the Holy Spirit has me covered. Yeah, yeah. You know, so even when I say something wacko, <laughs> you know, they, God can still work it out. Yes. Yeah, and. We have assurance that those prayers make it to the Father, don't we? Because the Holy Spirit is there helping us in every way. We're praying through the power of Jesus' name. None of that can fail. None of that can break down. Because of the triune God, our lives and our prayer, it's all for certain. It's all locked in because of God's goodness. Okay. All right. Well, next week we're going to look at a video. There will be a video. It's supposed to be a funny video. Um, there will be bad illustrations that we'll look at. Why should we not say that the Trinity is like water? H2O. Why should we not say the Trinity is like an apple where you've got the seed and the skin and the meat or whatever? Um, why should we not say the three-leaf clover? On and on and on it goes. We're going to look at all those and uh, talk about the heresies behind those analogies. Okay? Very good. Well, I'll pray one more time and then we'll be dismissed.